0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: Maybe this is what's always countercultural, but I felt it more this year. It's not that I was reminding people they're going to die, but I was reminding them... That there's hope, that's not the end of the story, that's not, death doesn't have the final word, that they're weak and that we are weak, that we are fragile, but that we are beloved, and that because of the work of Jesus on the cross, there is hope of resurrection, there is hope for more.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, and she's worked in ministry settings for more than a decade as a campus minister with InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty Ministries, and as an associate rector with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations. Most recently, Reverend Harrison Warren has worked as a writer-in-residence at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's the author of the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which won the 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Comment Magazine, The Point, and elsewhere. She's a founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum. She lives with her husband and three children in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So I want to begin our conversation at an interesting point in your book, Prayer in the Night. You're 40 years old, you are pregnant, and you are talking with your spiritual director. And your spiritual director says to you, I think that at this particular point, what I want to advise you to do is to start praying a prayer of indifference. And I want to start with that because I want my listeners to understand what a prayer of indifference means, what your spiritual director was asking you to do. But also from there, once we've answered that, I want to move towards why your spiritual director was advising you to pray that prayer. But as a way of getting started, let's start with this notion of a prayer of indifference. What was your spiritual director asking you to do at that moment?
1: Yeah. Well, I should say she was a spiritual director. She wasn't my spiritual director. So I, she w- was in my church and a spiritual director. And at that point was talking to me like she was my spiritual director, but I had a different spiritual director at the time, but she was a friend and I was having lunch with her. We was talking through my life. And well, the context was that I was pregnant at 40, kind of by surprise. And just the two years before that. or It was about a year and a half before that. I had two miscarriages in a row and they were both very sad. One in particular was I, it was a second trimester miscarriage. So I had carried the baby for a while and seen the baby multiple times by ultrasound. So it was pretty devastating. And so she mentioned the prayer of indifference, which is a sort of prayer There's different forms of it. There's different words people use. But it's essentially a prayer where you seek as much as you can, which the amount that we're able to do this at all is all by grace and a mystery of the Holy Spirit. But as much as you can to relinquish your desires, let go of demanding your own way, kind of move from like a closed fist grasping at life to an open-handed posture of reception and say to God your will be done right and so the the words that i used for this in the book and the words that i used actually in real life around this when I, when she was talking to me was when mary mother of jesus says to the The angel comes and tells her, you're going to have a baby, and he's going to be the Messiah. And she says, may it be to me as you have said, or some translations are, may it be to me according to your word. It's this sort of, as Princess Bride would say, as you wish, right? This sort of relinquishment of one's own expectations of life to say, okay, whatever, like, um, I'll receive what you give. But with that is kind of a letting go of your own plans. And so that's the context she was telling me to pray this in. I argued with her about it in the context of the book.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to get into that argument in just a moment, but I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly. So it's not a matter of relinquishing your desire it's not a matter of trying to quell any outcome at all that or any attachment to any outcome it's not saying i'm just i'm equally okay with everything my understanding from what you're saying is that you still have a vested interest in an outcome but you are willing to give it over to god and to god's greater wisdom that your outcome may be attenuated in some way by god's intervention. God's. I don't even know the words for this. But first of all, am I correct with that first piece that it's not a matter of just letting go of all desire? You still have desires even when you're praying in indifference. Do I understand that correctly?
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think um, that's a better way even of saying it than I said it. I When she told me that, part of the reason I argued with her is because I I thought what it was about was trying to empty oneself of wanting anything, like trying to just get where you the word indifference to me just conjured that, like, I was somehow supposed to not care if this child lived or not, this child inside me was born or not. And I just felt like I couldn't get there and I didn't want to get there. And, and yeah, it's less, it's, I thought that what I was being asked was to rid myself of desire, but that's not actually a good understanding of a prayer of indifference. What it actually is, is not letting go of desire per se. It's wanting what you want and wanting it honestly, but it's letting go of our white knuckled grip on that desire that says this is the only way I'm willing to live. This is the only way I'm willing to actually follow God. It's holding God hostage and saying, give me sort of these demand- I'm These are my demands and you have to fulfill them or else, or I'm not interested in in you. And it's so it's less letting go of desire is letting go on our like faith. It's letting go of the faith that this desire is the ultimate good in life and that no other good can come near it. It's relativizing our desires. It's not letting go of them. It's putting them in in their proper place, I would say.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. We're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that when you first heard this encouragement to pray with indifference or to do a prayer of indifference, what you heard initially was, give up my desire for the welfare of this baby, give up my desire, period, and just be neutral towards everything. And so that was your starting point. And you say you began to argue with this friend who was giving you some spiritual advice. What was the argument that you brought, and what did your friend say that convinced you that you were seeing this maybe not the way that she was intending it.
1: Yeah. So what I said at the time um, was I had lost two kids. I, It's not hard for me to think this won't work out. What's hard for me is to believe that it might. And it felt like the, the intimidation for me was hope, not, the idea of letting go and just not desiring, the, the trying to, I don't know, the word that comes to mind is cauterize. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but to shut down, make it where I can't feel this desire for the welfare of this baby, that felt more normal. I could do that. I could try to shut down what I wanted out of fear this in the context of the chapter i'm talking about how hope for me joy for me is a risk right it feels risky to actually hope for something or have joy because it might it, anything that we have joy over may end up in loss right and so when she was saying when she was talking to me about this prayer of indif- indifference i pushed back I didn't like the word indifference, right? Because I didn't want to be indifferent to this. What was what felt like a stretch for me was actually hoping that things would go well, was hoping that this would work out. And that felt risky and that took a lot of faith. So I said, I don't think I want to empty myself of desire, a kind of Eastern notions of like detaching ourselves, like having utter detachment from the world, So that we want nothing or desire itself being problematic or the root of suffering. I just, I kind of, I do, I I reject that idea. I think that it's good to want good things in life. It's right to want good things in life. And so I was pushing back against what I thought she was asking was empty yourself of all desire for this baby. And I just said, I'm not going to do that. And I don't think I ought to. And I think actually hoping is part of trust right now for me. But she clarified that she was saying, no, no, I'm not saying you, you shouldn't desire this child to be born or this child to be well. The prayer of indifference doesn't say that we don't actually want this. It's just saying that we want God more, that we are willing to desire God whatever happens, and that we will continue to desire God, whatever happens. It's this he gives and takes away, right? Yeah. Anyway, I think she was calling me not out of desire, but actually into a deeper desire.
0: And when that counter argument came, when your friend clarified what she was meaning by indifference, what changed for you in that moment? Did anything change? It seems as if that was a profound moment, and you certainly write about it as if some wisdom came to you, but I'd love for you to share with my listeners, what was the wisdom that crystallized for you when she clarified that?
1: Yeah, well, it did change in that, very practically, it changed and that I was willing to begin to pray this prayer. I was willing to say, may it be to me as you have said. I was willing to say, your will be done, in a way that that I wasn't before, because I knew I couldn't get myself to a point where I didn't actually really want this and when I didn't actually really want my son to be okay so it felt like I could if, the, if those prayers required true kind of apathy to what happens in the world like I just I couldn't pray them but if those prayers were me really wanting something before god but saying you are better you are i trust you in the midst of this and i recognize that i'm limited that even my desires are i don't have the whole it's a limitation of human knowledge like i don't have the whole scope of reality before me and it essentially it was relinquishing my desire to be god and to control the universe and saying okay this is what i want but i trust you to be God. It's the, as Psalm says, it's the Lord that guards the city. And I um, am going to hold my desires, but I'm also going to say your will be done. And I'm going to, some of it is, and I bring this point up in the book a lot, but I think sometimes we can't, like, it's not conjuring up kind of an emotional state of trust in God for me, it was being willing to say these words, being which are words from scripture, may it be to me as you have said. So even in the kind of, I believe, help my unbelief of that, I was able to say, okay, Lord, may it be to me according to your word, may it be to me according to your will. And so for me, the shift was that I could say these words even as I really did want my son to be okay. And even as my trust in God was waxed and waned, and there were days that I trusted God way more than other times when I didn't, but I could still take up this prayer as a practice of, okay, I want to trust you, or I want to want to trust you.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, and she's the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. Today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, and she's worked in ministry settings for more than a decade as a campus minister and in other various settings. She's the author of the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. Well, in our last segment, you used a phrase that I want to circle back to because it really struck me. You used the phrase, the intimidation of hope. And as soon as I heard you say that, part of what flashed in my head, since I'm a Chicago guy, was President Barack Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope, this notion of hope. But I really liked that phrase, the intimidation of hope that you used because I heard it in two different ways. One is that To hope in certain situations is intimidating, right? It's scary to hope, and, and we've begun to talk about that, but we can get into that. But also, in the circumstances that you were describing in the first segment, the hope had been literally intimidated out of you. And one thing that struck me, both in what you said, but also in what you wrote in your book, Prayer in the Night, was you were fine to fear, Fierce, fear felt normal for you in this situation where you were pregnant at 40, you had you had miscarriages, you had lost children, and you were fine to fear. What was really weird and scary for you was to be told or to think about the possibility of enjoying this moment or hoping in this moment. And I, I just want to dwell with you for a little bit in this phrase, the intimidation of hope. Tell me more about how when listeners are feeling that same kind of intimidation, how can they begin to Dig in, and what resources from the Christian tradition can they begin to draw upon to begin to address the intimidation of hope?
1: Yeah. So everything you said is is absolutely accurate. That fear I felt normal, or expectation of things not working out felt normal, but holding up the expectation that things might was its own kind of scary and intimidating. It's funny because the story that we're talking about comes towards the very end of my book. It's the I think it's the second to last chapter. It's a chapter called Shield the Joyous. And so I wrote about joy and I wrote about hope. And I'm going to use those in this interview a little bit interchangeably. I understand they're not the same thing, but they're obviously very related. And I think in many ways, hope is a desire for redemption, a desire for goodness, a desire for joy. But it's funny because that I had such a the the book deals with some really dark themes, right? That it talks about mortality, it talks about sickness, it talks about doubt, it talks about darkness, and so in in many ways, this chapter on joy it should is should be much lighter, right? It's it's about joy, but I had such a hard time writing it, and what I found in writing it, is that theologian types, seminary professors and stuff, we just, we had a really hard time talking about joy. And I asked around, I just felt like, I asked around because I was struggling to know what to say about joy. And the responses I got, I just were, I found unsatisfying. And partly because when you talk about joy, or hope with Christians, especially pastor-theologian types, they're very quick to say, "It's not circumstantial. Our joy can't be in circumstances. It, it's not having good ice cream or a pretty day or a healthy child that can't be what joy is, because joy is much deeper than that. It has to outlast all of that." And and Joy ultimately is in God alone. And so because people want joy to be in God alone, they when they talk about it, it just is like when everything is terrible and everything is awful, and then you still have this joy. To the extent where it just makes joy sound like, oh, why would anyone want that? That sounds terrible. <laughs> and and yet yeah, we don't want, want to just say that joy is good ice cream or... A pretty day. And hope certainly has to be more than just hoping that we get a fat bank account and a 401k, right? Like hope has to be deeper than just kind of surface blessings, right? We need like deep, enduring hope that remains even when things do look really dark. And so I struggled with how do I even talk about this? And what I ended up coming up with, what I ended up talking about in the book is this idea of sacramental reality to the universe. The theological word some people use is sacramental ontology. That's a big word that basically means these things we bump up in that are good in life, whether it's really good ice cream or a pretty day or a a child born healthy, that we can truly say these are good things to hope for, to have joy in. We don't have to be so six feet off the ground, kind of hovering in holiness that we don't actually say these are really good things to enjoy in life. But that, the goodness or joy we experience in these things are somehow connected, that when we bump up against them, we're bumping up a against a larger reality of joy, a deeper, truer, long-lasting joy. So when we taste good things or when we experience good gifts in this life, in this case, it was about pregnancy and my hope that a child would be born healthy and well, that these things are really, truly good things in themselves, but that they aren't the reason that I find them good is not just preference or a chemical trick in my brain, but because they actually participate in the reality of joy that is deep and and eternal and God alone, right? God's self. So I talk about this notion of kind of sacramental ontology is that when this stuff of earth sacramental idea of Earth that everything is sacred participates in, in something eternal participate participates in a, a larger being a larger reality than itself. The analogy I use in the book is a river behind my house now actually, and but we're actually in Austin now because we just moved two months ago you, you said Pittsburgh earlier, but we just moved, but there's a we're by a river, and the surface of the water is really just the surface because it's the river is fed by these deep subterranean springs that are connected to this really giant aquifer and so I talk about that that we touch on the surface these things of joy that are connected to this deep source and so what's been interesting is I've gotten so much response to the book in general but into this chapter in particular of so many readers writing in and saying I really identify with that it's easy for me to walk through life and try to intentionally lower expectations so that I'm not disappointed, so that things don't hurt as much when things go wrong. But the risk for me is actually letting myself hope that things might go well or hope that things, that there's hope for joy, like hope, hope that things will be well. And I, in terms of Christian practices, I think the only, I do think joy takes courage and risk takes courage. And the only way that we can actually be brave enough to hope for things is if we know that if it doesn't work out the way we want, then it's not the end of us. In other words, if we can have a posture of receiving life as a gift, then we can hope without demanding. And we can hope without needing something to happen, without resting the weight of our soul on it. And in other words, if we actually believe that, as the Psalms say, that God will not abandon our souls to hell, that we won't be abandoned, then we can receive the really good things. And we can actually have actual happiness in the ice cream or the pretty day or the child being well. Or whatever, the raise we get, or the job we have, or the health that we have, that we can actually be grateful for these things and not try to over spiritualize them because they're not ultimate things, because they point to, to a reality that's greater. And so we can receive them as a gift. And so I do, in that chapter, talking about a prayer of indifference, and particularly Mary, who's an example of this, right? She receives her child as a gift it to treasure these things up in her heart. And still right then when her baby when in that moment of joy, she's told a sword will pierce your heart also, right? There's this sort of promise of darkness and loss. And the fact is all of us have a promise of darkness and loss in this life. Like we're all going to die. And so how do we continue to be people of hope, continue to actually receive joy without, waiting for the other shoe to drop in a world where there's so much beauty and we will also die. And I think that tension, that posture is the posture of the Christian life. But it's only possible if we think that this reality, this stuff of earth, this sacramental reality points to something bigger, truer, longer, if it points to an eternal source of all these good things.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's the author of the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. Just a moment ago, you said something that just struck me. You say that joy and hope take courage. And when you said that, another part of your book from earlier in Prayer in the Night jumped out to me, and that was when your two friends, one of whom is also a pastor, Hunter, and his wife, Julie, they also had a young child that was about to go into surgery, and you describe earlier in your book, Prayer in the Night, this moment between them where Julie turns to her husband, Hunter, and says, before the surgery, we need to make a choice whether or not we think God is good, because we can't make God be dependent on and God's goodness be dependent upon the outcome of this operation. We have to make the choice now before we have the data and i'm thinking about the the courage of that kind of moment to say we're going to risk saying that god is good even in the possibility the very real possibility that disaster could strike and as i'm making that connection am i following in the right path am i making the right connections or would you think about that moment between pastor hunter and his wife julie in a different way
1: no i think in some ways the story that you're talking about with hunter and julie are the that's the grounding story of the book. It's where I start because that story blew me away. Julie's response altered my view of reality, honestly, because yeah, because she said right now, before we know if our son's going to be okay, we have to decide if we believe this stuff, if we actually believe God is good. And she said, because if we don't, if we wait to determine that, by the outcome of the surgery we will always keep god on trial and and i see this right that it, it, when a good thing happens it's kind of evidence on both sides so a good thing happens and it's okay that's evidence maybe that god loves us there is a god who loves us who is trustworthy and then but then horror happens and that's evidence on the other side and we could constantly play this kind of game of poker where you just sort of theist versus an atheist or it or even I honestly I think this happens in every single one of I, I'm a priest and this happens in my own heart all the time. Of okay, well my my friend is healed and healthy and, and she recovered from cancer, but my other friend passed away or, and it gets bigger, right? We, we could say, okay, well, we have the beauty of sunrises and monarch migrations, but we also have tsunamis and mass death. And we have like beautiful acts of human goodness. We have everything from like really good Texas barbecue and good baseball to things like the, Sistine Chapel but we also have the Holocaust right we so it it just becomes this constant kind of comparing kind of all the good in the world and all the bad in the world and it's just it the evidence is frankly inconclusive if that's like the if that's how we determine the goodness or not of god there's there's just horror in the world and there's so much beauty so the idea of making god not kind of On trial, but just sort of ending the trial and making a judgment on do I believe this? Do I believe God is good? was such a faithful act to me, but also true. It seemed absolutely right uh, that the other way is just there lies madness, I think. And what I talk about is, but what Julie was rooting her faith in there wasn't just a leap in the dark. Because if it's not the evidence of the world, if it's not whether or not her individual son survived that surgery or didn't, if that's not the evidence that proves God's goodness or not, then what is it? Is it just, do we just hope? Is it, is it wishful thinking? Is it like religious delusion? And what I say in the book is she made a choice about God's goodness, but she didn't base it on the circumstances of her son. And whether or not he was well, but on the life of Jesus. That she looked to evidence, but the evidence she looked to, she even looked to historical evidence, but it wasn't hmm. the amount of goodness versus the amount of evil in the world. She looked at the person of Christ, and then in particular like the whole story of redemptive history, what creation, fall, redemption, consummation, this big story of scripture. And it was in the person of Christ that she decided to believe God was good. And of course, in some ways, that's really simple. But watching a mom but seeing her faithfulness in that very real gritty moment of her life, she was literally in the operation. Her two-year-old son was being wheeled back into an OR. That that feels like that's where she began to believe, right? That's the gritty reality of when this all this sort of theory that we hold to in the Christian life becomes, is it, do we actually believe it or not? Um, So I have a a good friend who's a pastor, been a pastor for many years, over 40 years, and has cancer and said, you know, a lot of what I've said in my life has been theory about God. And now theory is not enough. And so I'm beginning to believe in a new way. And of course he's believed his whole life. But he's beginning to believe in a way that is way past theoretical because he's facing his own death. And I think in the same way, I think Julie doing this, for me, a lot of the stuff that I hold in theory, realizing, oh, yeah, this is when we believe in reality, whether or not we actually think God is trustworthy or not.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America and has worked in ministry settings for more than a decade as a campus minister with InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty Ministries as an associate rector, and she's also worked with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations. She's the author of the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, and today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work. Or watch or weep. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's worked in ministry settings for more than a decade as a campus minister with the InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty Ministries and also as an associate rector and with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations. She's the author of the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. Well, we've been talking about grief and we've been talking about hope in the face of grief and You weave this again and again in your book, Prayer in the Night, back into the rhythms of the church, back into the practices of prayer and even the daily office of prayer in the Anglican tradition, but also in the Catholic tradition and other traditions where people pause through the day and they bring prayer into their rhythms and their moments. But one thing that an an image that just really struck me was both you and your husband are Anglican priests. And you both preside at services, and there's this image of you both presiding at... Ash Wednesday. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar, this is, uh, in several Christian traditions, a time when people are reminded that they are mortal, and ashes are literally placed on the forehead with the phrase, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return, or other phrases like that. But you describe that both you and your husband, Jonathan, as you're administering these sort of rites to the people that are coming to the altar rail, you begin to have emotional responses. You weep. As you are placing the ashes, and I wonder if you talk to me and my listeners about what it's like to be in that moment and what kind of emotions are hitting you then.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my husband and I both inevitably, I think every time we've presided in an Ash Wednesday service, we have begun to cry, and we both are fairly emotional people. We both—it's not unusual for him or I to cry in a sermon or. As we're presiding, but we—it's funny because—and some of us maybe we're still pretty young and we're still pretty new. I feel like I know priests who have been doing this thirty years and they no longer cry at this because it's—they—it's their work. They've done it a thousand times. We—I've been a priest about six years, and so it's still fairly new at this. But for us, I think for both of us, I think I cry maybe more and just throughout Ashman's Day it, it's really I think one of the most beautiful countercultural services that we have but in particular what gets both of us is having to put ashes on children and babies when these little kids kneel before us, their faces are so bright. They're so beautiful and lovely. And the fact that we have to tell them you're going to die, that we remind them that they are ash, that they are dust and to dust, that they will return. And then we put ashes on their head. We literally darken these beautiful, bright faces. And with a proclamation of death, we don't end there. This is important. We end the service with proclamation of light, we end the service with the Eucharist. So we proclaim ultimately resurrection, which is the hope, right, of the world. So we don't end there, but we do pass through that. And it's deeply emotional. It's emotional for me as, well, just, of course, a human being that knows that we don't know what tomorrow holds. So even though this child is four, five, six, just little, of course, we hope they have a long life, but we don't know And they are made of dust. And so remembering that these little ones are so vulnerable, these little ones might face death or things just as dark as death, is really emotional to me. And then it's my job to tell them that. But also, as a parent, this gets me every time. Because inevitably, someone will bring a baby who's less than a few months old, teeny tiny baby, and you mark them for death and the parents begin to cry. And my husband in particular, when he has to mark our own children, which we do because they're in the service. And so he's marked our kids and reminded them that they're dust and he just loses it or good friends of our kids. Anyone, if we've had kids over for a play date and where we've gone to the swimming pool with them. And then, and with, so he's just in total dad mode, just a parent, Not he's not acting, you know. We, of course, we're always priests, but our kids relate to us like parents, right? No, we're not there. They, they don't say, Father Jonathan, can you take my confession? That's not our relationship with our kids. And with their friends, we're used to ha- just hanging out with them. And so then in the sacred moment of looking at these faces that we know so well and reminding them as we remind ourselves that we are dust and to dust we shall return man it's just deeply emotional and it's in some ways it's very bad news and no one goes in the ministry i say this in the book to proclaim bad news we are there to proclaim hope but before we get to the good news of the gospel we talk about the bad news of death but i don't just mean the cessation of life the power of darkness, the power of evil in the world. And uh, as both a human being and as a mother, having to remind the innocent of that is just it's really devastating every
0: year. There's another image from your book, Prayer in the Night, that is related to this powerful emotion that comes up around Ash Wednesday. You describe your own experience of kneeling at the altar rail and receiving ashes yourself, and there's a mother and her daughter next to you, and the daughter receives the ashes and turns to her mother and asks, do my ashes look all right? (laughs) And that really struck me, and I'd love to, in light of what you just said, reflect on on that moment of this desire to to take this real mortal truth and to pretty it up in some way or to treat it almost like a fashion sense. And I don't want to overstate what the daughter was asking because it's very profound what you do within the book, but I'd love for you to reflect on it with me and my listeners.
1: Yeah, I love this. I carried this story because this probably happened my second or third, I mean, very early, before I was a priest, when I was new to this whole Anglican thing because I didn't grow up Anglican. And so I loved the story, and I've always wanted to use it in something. And I'm glad I saved it because it works really well in the book. But I think about it all the time because I identify with this girl. She was probably ten or eleven, just somewhere ten to twelve. The the time where you have this emerging conscious of wanting to be cool and look cool, and there's literally no way you can look cool on Ash Wednesday. You have giant smudge on your head. But so I'm kneeling. In this really intense moment, right, where people are, as I just said, people are getting marked and children are getting marked. And then I hear this little voice turn to her mom and say, does my ash look okay? Which I started, so I start laughing. I'm kneeling and now I'm laughing with ash on my head because it just thought it was such a funny question. There's no way that this could look okay. There's not even a really good answer to that question. What's her mom going to say? You have ashes on your head how does that look good? But I talk about it in it, about how we sort of, we all carry around this reality of death, mortality, but also, as I said, the power of death, the power of sin and evil. And yet we all want to look cool. We want to look together. Like we've got this, we've got this under control. We We're, we're managing, right? And so I use it in the book to talk about how our ashes don't look okay. I mean that metaphorically, also literally, but this mortality and sin we bear, its if we're really honest, the biggest places of vulnerability in our life are not pretty and they're not cool. There's redemption and there's, of course, beauty in all of that, But they're, but the most vulnerable places in our life, we don't look okay. And yet we so desperately... I'll just speak for myself. I so desperately want to control things so that I do look good or so that I do look okay. And so that my vulnerability is this kind of acceptable, sexy, curated vulnerability that makes me relatable, but not obnoxious, right? But I think the truest parts of ourselves are kind of obnoxious. I mean, we don't look good. We don't look okay. Or maybe if it's not the truest, it's a very true part of ourselves. And there's freedom in that because we're all there. There's a great freedom in going, you know what, I have ashes in my head and it looks ridiculous. But so I identify, I I was not mocking that girl. I was laughing because I just so deeply identify with her. I just get it. I get that question on a really visceral level.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Rev. Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's the author of the book Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And today we're talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. I'm really struck by this phrase that you just used. You said that you were there at the altar rail laughing with ashes on your head. And when I think about what we've been talking about in our conversation, about this risky choice of hope in the face of evidence to the contrary, this attachment to joy that isn't just accidental and isn't just based in what flavor of ice cream we get or whether or not we get a raise at our job. It it strikes me that this kind of vision of laughing with ashes on your head is exactly what the entirety of your book Prayer in the Night is trying to get readers to do. You're trying to ground them in practices that are ancient as the church is ancient, and that have been used in the midst of extremity, like you, you talk about the fact that there are complaints from certain Christians that that the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, that they use rote prayers, they use pre-written prayers, and they're not praying from the heart. But your whole point is sometimes. The church prays for us even when we are too tired or too exhausted or too hurt to pray. That's exactly right. I really love this because you're teaching us how to laugh with ashes on our head. Am I getting this right or am I—would you say it in a different way?
1: Well, so I didn't consider that image until you just said it now, but I like like that image a lot. And there's different—it's not— just sort of defiant, although I think there is a sense of defiant joy in the face of darkness. It's not only that, though. It's not only defiance in the face of darkness. So it's certainly not denial of the darkness because the ashes are on your head, right? And because Christians can do this, right? They can. That we even use theology at times to to say, "Oh, it's not that bad," or. Jesus is going to make it okay, so don't really mourn, don't really feel this. But I'm saying in the book, like, and I and I don't like, actually, when people say, because I talk in the book about how do you trust God when you can't trust God to keep bad things from happening? And people try to theologically worm out of that, wiggle out of that conundrum by saying, well, it's not really, you know, if we could know everything God knew, it's not really bad. But I think that's not true. I think we need to be able to say, no, it's really bad. It's like the things, the the evil that happens, the world truly is wrong. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And yet, God is trustworthy in the midst of that. And I think, so what I mean is we can use theology to minimize death, to minimize darkness, to minimize the crushingness of life. And the cross would be, we minimize the cross of, of Jesus' cross, but also our crosses that we bear. But I think in so doing, we minimize resurrection, right? We minimize hope. So yes, I would say I like the image of laughing at the rail with ashes in your head. I hadn't considered that, but that ultimately it depends on where does that laughter come from? Is it denial? Is it just defiance? Or is there a, a real truth behind the laughter? Is the, is the laughter true? And so. Significantly, I, I think what ultimately is the grounding for that laughter is that later in the sur- if we just ended with the imposition of ashes and that was the end of the service and we went home, there would not be much cause for hope, I don't think. But we end with a meal, we end with the Eucharist, we end with the proclamation that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's how the service ends. Because of that, that's where the laughter comes from, and that's where we can actually enjoy these good things that are really good in the world because there is hope of restoration. There's the renewal of all things, right? That Jesus says, I am making all things new. That's the deep source, uh, going back to what we were talking before, the subterranean source of the laughter in the midst of this. And I wrote a piece, I, I have a column for Christianity Today, and I wrote a piece around Ashman's Day this year because usually what feels really countercultural that Ashman's Day is reminding people that they're going to die. There's so much death denial in our culture. Uh, And this isn't, I'm not just saying this as a priest, sociologist who I cite in the piece have actually done work to show the extremes Americans, Westerners will go to, to not admit death or to avoid thinking about death or certainly to avoid talking about death. And so we deny we sort of deny death. And so that Ash Wednesday is countercultural ritual in the midst of that, where all these people are coming together to just say, we are going to die to remind you, you are going to die. And so it always feels like this sort of record scratch moment of the year where it's just super countercultural to be able to proclaim to these people, you're going to die. But this year, that didn't feel, because of COVID, it feels like, This is old news. Like we are so aware of our weakness. We're so aware of our vulnerability. It's on the front pages of the news. Many of us have radically altered, spent a year with radically altered habits from not going to work to putting on a mask. So this constant reminder of mortality and sickness. So what was really countercultural, maybe this is what's always countercultural, but I felt it more this year is not that i was reminding people they're going to die but i was reminding them that there's hope that's not the end of the story that's not death doesn't have the final word that they're weak and that we are weak that we are fragile but that we are beloved and that because of the work of jesus on the cross there's hope of resurrection there's hope for more so that maybe is always the countercultural part but this year it felt more it, it often feels like ash Day is this reminding people they're going to die. And this year, it was reminding people of the laughter, as you were saying, reminding people that's not all there is.
0: What strikes me, you called your book Prayer in the Night, and this notion of darkness comes up again and again in the book. And I'm going to say, you don't say this in the book, but I'm going to paraphrase, it's easy to rejoice and pray when your belly is full, in all senses of that word, when things are going right, when when the sun is shining. What's more difficult is to pray when the sun has disappeared, when you have loss, when you are in extremity. And one of the things that I really like about what you've just said is there's a dynamic because you want to remind people when their bellies are full and when they're happy, hey, you are mortal to dust, you will return. But when people are in the kind of time like we're in, you want to remind them of the laughter, but not a kind of consumerist empty laughter, but that real connected deep joy that we've been talking about throughout the conversation. So it's not just a distraction from the COVID. It's not just a distraction from the loss. It's a real risky act of hope. Am I hearing that right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I think there is something to... Consumerism and to privilege that if you are privileged enough, you can wrap your life in little comforts to deny reality, right? To deny darkness. And I think we have shallow understandings of darkness at times, and so we have shallow hope. And I think really facing the brokenness of the world honestly allows us to actually find hope that is real, that is deeper, honestly. I was listening recently to, it was, it was a podcast actually between Russell Moore and and Tim Keller and Tim Keller has cancer and uh, was talking about these sort of deep, (laughs) like this deep hope, this deep wisdom that he's received as he's walking through this really very serious, almost always fatal diagnosis. And um, Moore asked him, so how do you... How do you learn, you know, how do we get this, those of us who aren't dying of cancer, how do we get this depth of faith you had? And Keller, I thought really insightfully, and I also thought it was funny, you said, well, you can't. (laughs) This only comes to those of us who are dying of cancer. I mean, in other words, there are things that you can only learn when the kind of comforts and privileges of life have been stripped away. And so we see this, I mean, we see that I, we see a depth of faith in the black church and engagement of the world that we don't see in white evangelicalism because there's a suffering that they've endured so that when they proclaim hope, it doesn't feel saccharine. It doesn't feel like it's just privilege. It feels like it's the kind of deep hope, the deep joy that's, that comes through a long, hard labor, right? It's this enduring hope that's really rooted in resurrection alone. And as my friend Asa Macaulay has said, like the only hope for the the black church in America is the resurrection of Jesus. It's not white people reforming because there's very little evidence of that, right? And so it's this much deeper, eternal kind of resonant hope because of their suffering and through their suffering. So I do think there's wisdom that's only there when other kinds of shallower consumerist privileges dwindle, or that you just don't have them.
0: Well, Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, I got to say, this book, Prayer in the Night, it knocked my socks off. I didn't know that I needed this book right now, but it really spoke to me. It it really changed the way that I think about some of my own daily rhythms of prayer, and I think you've convinced me to explore once again some aspects of the daily office that I've neglected. I also want to share it with my students. I hope that my listeners pick up this book. It will speak to you. It will touch you. It is so honest. It is so raw and real. I know it comes from a place of travail for you. You suffered in the writing of this book in some literal ways. Nevertheless, I'm so grateful that you took the time to take those experiences and to write them down and to reflect on them as deeply as you have. I'm especially grateful that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: We've been speaking today with the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America and has worked in ministry settings for more than a decade. She's the author of the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. We've been talking about her recent book, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio.